Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. I have two words for you. This is the Victor Davis Hanson show. That's two words in Delaware, by the way. Uh, I'm Jack Crowler. (laughs) Oh, man. I can't believe he's our president. I'm Jack Fowler. I'm the host. Victor Davis Hanson, the namesake, is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow with the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Plenty of stuff to discuss today. First thing, uh, Victor, we're going to jump into is this discussion, this interview that Tucker Carlson had with Tony Bobolinsky about his relations with the uh, Biden Corleone family and the lingering fact that the FBI has still not dealt with Bobolinsky about the treasure trove of information he has about just how corrupt this family is. It's not just about Hunter. Biden. It's about the big guy and the 10%. And we're going to get Victor's views on this right after these important messages. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. Victor was quite a week uh, for, I must say, for Tucker Carlson. He had uh, two nights of interviews with Kanye West. I know you've discussed the ramifications of that or everything related to Kanye West with the great Sammy Wink on another episode of uh, this podcast. So our listeners should, should look out for that. But prior to, to the West uh, interviews, uh, Carlson sat down with Tony Bobolinsky, which he did two years ago. Uh, One of the great story that no other major media outlet picked up on. And Bobolinsky was a business associate, uh, with Hunter Biden, 
um, Jim Biden, the brother of the president, a couple of other folks. Uh, he was scammed himself by the Bidens, but he has he, he verifies he's totally trustworthy a guy. Even the the FBI has said this guy is you know after an initial discussion with him two years ago credible a most credible um, guy and a patriot, and yet um, two years after the expose of all the information he had, again not only about Hunter Biden but about Joe Biden. There's yet to be any FBI follow up with him. And, and Victor, and I'll just say one more thing of the many things of the in Tucker Carlson's interview with him, with Bob Linsky, that dis, I found disturbing was the fact that the Biden, um, uh, Biden Inc. had a, a plan. Their goal was to make billions of dollars billions of dollars dealing with China and essentially helping fund China's road belt and trade or whatever, you know, they, this, this, this port and, um, and shipping stranglehold that China plans for the globe. And that was fine, I guess, with the Bidens, as long as they were going to cash in on it. I just find it so traitorous. Anyway, Victor, that's just my silly opinion. I'm going to be quiet. I, th I think you probably have a lot of analysis and wisdom to share. Well, if, he's, if nobody has challenged his veracity and he's begged the FBI to interview him again, and they really didn't want to interview him the first time. So what he's alleging is a, a series of felonies. For example, I think he said that uh, Jim Biden, the brother, as you pointed out, defrauded him and that guy Walker, the other guy, Jillior or something, I forgot his name, but they uh, defrauded them out of $5 million. They rewrote the contract and created a, a dummy new company and diverted the money so they wouldn't know about it and get it. And then, of course, it looks like uh, Joe Biden lied when he said he knew nothing of his, of his son's businesses. But we knew that anyway from the laptop, Mr. 10% and all that stuff. But when he, And the phone call that was recorded tipping off hunter about the likely exemption he was going to give so i guess what i'm saying is that it's one of these things that it's just an elephant in the room that this family of mediocrities when their older brother was anointed vice president they felt that this was their first and final chance i mean they were small town grifters but this was a chance to really make money so they went whole hog in Ukraine, in China, in Russia. And when you look at Joe Biden's homes, those aerial Google shots of his home, and you look at his salary, it's almost impossible to, to square the circle of how he got the capital to do that and the way they were living. And Hunter Biden, you know, paying twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 for prostitutes, for drugs, where did all that money come from? Which also then begs the question, what, what were they doing? Why would people who were very astute in cost-to-benefit analyses like the Chinese or the Russians, why would they give them anything other than they gave them money for influence? But why would they continue to give them money for influence unless they delivered? In other words, unless Joe Biden went back and he tried to give exemptions and get people fired in Ukraine and try to warp U.S. foreign policy. And this opens another very interesting subject because I think it's relevant to this, and that is this mythological narrative that we saw during the Russian collusion hoax that the left, the Democratic Party, 
had been tough on Russia. Remember, James Clapper said that Trump was a Russian asset, Russia, Russia, Russia. But if you just be empirical, just be empirical, and you look at what Biden was doing and getting money from the Russians, the Biden conglomerate, look, look, look what the policy was. That administration did not sell offensive weapons to Ukraine. And Jack, right now we read, and I just read it this morning, that the Ukrainians are plagued with odd, sophisticated drones. And those drones were re-engineered in 2011 when American sophisticated drones, I think they were Sentinel drones, crashed. Remember that? And they wanted to blow them up. I think Dick Cheney said, bomb them. And Obama, because he was invested in the Iran deal, didn't want. And remember, he had not said a word about the Green Revolution in 2009 because he had this crackpot idea of remaking the Middle East with a Persian Shia underdog crescent from Tehran into Lebanon, Syria, Hezbollah, Hamas. And they were going to balance our allies, which he felt were our enemies. But my point is that those drones are playing a very prominent role. And then when you add in what Russian collusion did in the hot mic in Seoul, South Korea in March 2012, when they caught Obama basically with a quid pro quo, tell Vladimir blank blank. But what we forget about that conversation is that all the promises were kept. Obama said, give me space. I have one more election, i.e. behave and don't go into any country. And he didn't until Obama was reelected. And then Obama did cancel Eastern European missile defense. And I bring that up, Jack, because right now, if Poland and the Czech Republic and Germany were protected by an anti-ballistic missile system that would be in place, they would have some modicum of deterrence when Putin threatens nuclear war everywhere in Europe. And so that was another baleful legacy of the Biden vice presidency and the Obama presidency. And so what I'm trying to get at is that there was appeasement. And Joe Biden in 2015, it's a really remarkable speech. Everybody should go back and look at it. He said that we tried to reach out to Russia and we were going to bring them in and we were we did everything and we're still working on it. And it was it was incredible because that 2015 speech was just months after the cyber attacks where Obama said, cut it out. Remember Vladimir? And he didn't. And then Biden later, remember, Jack, Biden later when he came into office said he went, he told Vladimir that if you're going to hack, don't hack these 16 targets. Right. Right. So there was something weird about that, that he was not able to be muscular and to deter Russia. And then when we put it finally in the entire picture, it was who hired Russian sources. It was Hillary Clinton through those paywalls, you know, Birkins Co., DNC, Fusion GPS. But she hired Dashinko and she had this Charles Dolan Dolan in Moscow. And they were being fed Russian sources and they knew it. So they were indirectly working with the Russians. And the FBI hired Dushinko, a Russian agent, a Russian citizen, excuse me, but they hired him as well as Hillary. He's being paid by two paymasters. And then when you finally look at the record, gosh, Donald Trump reversed reset. This is what's so striking right now about the left has appropriated this idea that they were hard on Russia. They weren't. They created the, the situation in which Putin went in. They did it long term uh, mm-hmm. during the Obama 
administration. And we know that because the first thing that Trump did did when he came into office, remember that he flooded the world with cheap oil to Russia's chagrin. He upped right. sanctions. He killed those mercenaries in Syria, Russian mercenaries. First time any Russians had been killed by Americans. He got out of that asymmetrical missile deal. He sold offensive weapons to Ukraine, Javelin missiles. I could go on, but he was very tough on Russia, even as they was being called an asset. And O'Biden and uh, well, Biden, that's a good term, but Biden <laughs> and Obama had not been. Hey. And now they, and what they did do, though, is in their impotence and their appeasement, the more they understood that Biden dash Obama were being manipulated and insulted and humiliated by Russia, the more their ambassador in Moscow and the more they themselves gave these very idealistic human rights uh, condemnations of Russia. So they were speaking loudly with a twig. And suddenly this has all been transmogrified, that the left has always been, you know, when you read Max Boot or you read John Bolton, who's I think on the left now, and you read all these people, we're going to get tough, we're going to remove him from all, all this stuff. But the long-term appeasement of Russia occurred between 2009 and 2016. And then the short-term accelerant or the dessert, the cherry on top, was the Afghanistan debacle that convinced Putin that we wouldn't do anything. And the anemic response that Biden had toward Russian cyber attacks on us as well as the politicalization of the military. So when Putin looked at the U.S. military, he said, wow, they're woke. Their chairman of the Joint Chiefs is tipping off his Chinese counterpart against his own commander-in-chief. These people just, this is the finale. I'll just go into Ukraine. They won't do anything. Just like I did under Obama in 2014. They didn't even say a word. So that's what he, he did. And now that whole reality has been disguised and warped and manipulated. And suddenly we hear that Trump was a Russian stooge and they were tough on mm -hmm. Russia and they're tough. And it's just a complete fabrication. Right. It's always projection and, and 180. Yep. Victor, I, I know this has been discussed by others uh, over the last couple of days. Um, headline in the uh, in the New York Post and maybe some other papers was, you know, Hunter Biden on, uh, on the cusp of being prosecuted, not for any of the stuff we, we've just been talking about, but, but for tax evasion and lying on federal forms about his drug um, history, fel fel felonies and applying for gun permits, et cetera, et cetera. Chump, chump, excuse me, chump change compared to everything else. And uh, I don't know what your thoughts are, Victor, of, of you know, if he's prosecuted for that as a as an as a stand in for a, a true investigation, thorough, deep and broader prosecution, not only of him for these other acts of of I believe they're treason. Yeah, I think you're I think you're right. And Andy McCarthy, who's our former colleague and was very hard on Trump wrote an article about this. So did Miranda Devine, Devine. So did a lot of people. And their basic thesis was they are now backed into a corner that his felonies that he's admitted to, and there's even pictorial evidence of them when he's in bed using drugs with prostitutes. Those are two crimes right there, illegal drug use and soliciting drugs and soliciting prostitution 
and not reporting income and lying on a federal gun permit. All of those are so egregious that they have to do something. So I think these articles make the point that they're going to have some virtue signaling performance art statement that will say, well, we have an independent investigator and and then it's going to be a slap on the wrist, a little fine. And then they're going to take victory laps about how Joe Biden Justice Department is an independent autonomous and Merrick Garland had nothing to do with this, just like he had nothing to do with anything else, supposedly. So yeah, that's what's going to happen. They have to do something. And the only question is they can't do it before the midterms. So if they really, really, really were independent federal prosecutors, then they've had so much evidence. I mean, they got a laptop. It's just like a blank check. You just commit. They would do two things if they were real prosecutors. They would indict him before the midterms. And number two, they would look at Joe Biden and they would see those references to the big guy and Mr. 10%. And then they would get a forensic financial sleuth and they would look at all of the income that came in. And then they would look at all the expenditures that Joe Biden uh, has spent and they would see whether or not he paid federal income tax and they would have a special prosecutor. And I think he would find that Joe Biden, I don't want to smear him, but I think he would find that he did not report all the income of the 10%. And if it was 40 or 50 million, you can see it was a, a large number of checks that were written to him. And then they should go to each one of these principles and they should offer them immunity, Walker, Bobolinsky, maybe even Hunter, and say, we want to know exactly how much money was sent to Joe Biden. And then look at his federal tax return. I do not think he declared money coming in from Verisma or these uh, shell companies that were third-party uh, intermediaries to hide the source of the original funding. So this guy is what well, I'm trying to be diplomatic, but this president is probably the most corrupt president we've had in a century. And I mean that. Isn't He's a grifter. His income, his lifestyle, everything. And you can really mm-hmm. see this sick relationship, as I've said before, Jack, between Hunter and Joe. When you read those emails on that laptop, he has bitterness, he has anger at Joe Biden. And his anger is basically, I'm the bag man for the family. I take the hit. And every time they say to him, you know, tone it down, Hunter. You're too high profile. Don't right. leave your crack pipe in a rental car. Don't right. throw an irregularly or illegally registered gun in a dumpster. Don't start having sexual relations with your son's widow. Just tone it down. Then he sort of says, oh, tone it down, huh, Mr. Big, Mr. 10%. And then he had that email, I think, to his sister, or was it his first cousin when he said, I'm carrying this family. I've been doing it for years, and I'm tired of it. Then he called, I think, didn't he say Peter Petto or Petto for his daughter, for his father? That was the Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. my gosh. And then, yeah. and then on and on. So what I think is happening is Joe Biden, when he uses these superlatives, like, I've never met a smarter man than Hunter. He doesn't believe that. He's a wonderful person. But he's trying to say things because he knows that Hunter is full of anger at him because he's such a, his uh, behavior has been so filthy and reprehensible, yet it was in service to enriching his dad that he feels that 
he's taking the he's the bad guy, the bad cop, and Joe Biden's the good cop, and he doesn't yeah. like it. And so Biden knows that and thinks, you know what? This guy is such a cokehead and so unstable that at any given moment he could get on TV and incriminate me. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to praise him to the skies. And I think that's that's the key. He's, he's he looks like a, a kind of a picture of Dorian Gray of all the this yeah. evil of the family is yeah, kind of uh, in, it's, is so, soaked into the face of it's written over his uh, his chest, his belly, and his face. And <laughs> every time you see him with a cigarette in his mouth, or he looks like he's some kind of playboy stud or something posing that way in the pictures it's almost like yeah i'm decadent i'm sick i'm a pervert what are you going to do about it it's that kind of and you can really see it with that art projects you know when he was painting with a straw straw, he knew that if he painted with a straw in his mouth people are going to make jokes that it was about his straw in his nose and uh he understood that and he understood they were very sensitive about hunter biden so what did he do he went full bore right out into the New York art scene and got a bunch of mm-hmm. shakedown artists to give him a gallery. And then he got a lot of foreign clientele to buy his mediocre, awful paintings for half a million bucks. And his really the subtext of that was to his dad and to Ron Klain and all the handlers. I'm going to still do it. I'm still <laughs> trying to leverage your name, dad. Right. And I still give you the 10%, but if you don't like it, then I suggest that you come clean too. You're just as dirty with your tie and your suit and old Joe Biden from Scranton. And, you know, I think he's got a lot of bitterness. I think, you know, when he, when, when the Biden daughter has that diary and they're, they're just desperate. I mean, I've never seen anything like it where the FBI has been transmogrified into a family retrieval service. Right. I mean, a whole, if you think about it, dispassionately, in retrospect, an entire election hinged on that laptop. According right. to polls, if people had known it was genuine, and people like James Clapper and Brennan hadn't lied and used their fides to convince us it was Russian disinformation, that would have changed the election. Or, or, or Facebook and Twitter blocking the New yes. York Post. Uh, exactly. You couldn't even read the article. Or uh, the diary. The diary was already yeah. floating mm-hmm. around of yeah. the daughter who said that she felt uncomfortable that she'd showered with her father. Yeah. And so this family is, I don't know, it's a receptacle of crime perversion you name it every pathology is in that biden family and nobody's really talked about it because he has this little image and i guess the democrats thought we have gone so hard to the left when they had that clownish cast of characters in the 2020 primary debates beto cory booker julian castro elizabeth warren bernie sanders you know, as I said, Spartacus, and there was nobody there. And so they they resurrected this old construct out of the, the 70s, good old Joe Biden, the Catholic working man, moderate Democrat, which didn't exist. And they put him in his basement. And then the media lied and covered and Mark Zuckerberg put in four, 419 million. And we were off to the races. But there is a divine power. I really believe that. And I think it's a Christian power, but if I didn't believe that it was a Christian power and I was an ancient Greek, I would say there's divine forces called nemesis, and they always hunt, the goddess nemesis always hunts for hubris. 
Mm-hmm. When they see hubris, that is overweening arrogance that you can go beyond the limits of human behavior and decency, then they're going to strike you. And they're striking this Biden family. And I don't think they're going to be in big trouble. I think, first of all, he's going to take the entire Democratic Party down in four weeks. Right. They're going to lose a Senate in the House. And then they're going to have a cannibalistic civil war about whose fault it was. Well, Victor, uh, you know, we've made these Corleone uh, uh, associations, and I wish it was was that simple, maybe just one or two more minutes here on, uh, on uh, the Bidens. But uh, I mean, the Corleones are gambling and, and, uh, and prostitution and uh, all of them, all of the mortal sins from a Catholic perspective, but let's say they're all domestic or local and what, uh, what the Bidens were after. And also look at Hillary Clinton selling our, essentially selling our significant, uranium deposits so the clinton foundation could get some uh booty from some oligarch over there but but these folks the clintons and the bidens have no problem um selling out america's true national security interests to america's true enemies oh, in the case yeah, of china absolutely absolutely it's 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 tre- it's and don't listen treason. don't listen to you or me listen to the new york times because when hillary oversaw that ransom or what it was uh that company that sold uh the majority of its right. North american uranium holdings to russian oligarchs that were really operatives of the Putin government, they had, I think they sent $3 million to the Clinton Foundation and they paid Bill Clinton $500,000 to speak in Moscow. The right. New York Times, the New York Times said Clinton's uh, cash flow into the Clinton Foundation coffers as uranium is sold to Russia. So they knew about it. And uh, so everybody understood that in, that. Hillary Clinton was sacrificing the national security interest of the United States for personal profit. And everybody understood that Barack Obama and the hot mic and soul right in a re-election year was basically saying to the Russians, you hold off on invading and embarrassing me and showing that my appeasement reset policy failed. And And he called that giving me space in my last election last time I'm going to be up for election. And then in return for that, I will look seriously about missile defense. And that project was already well underway. Right. He canceled the Polish Czech participation in it to our uh, disadvantage as far as national security vis-a-vis, not just Iran, but as Putin knew, he knew that it could be used against him, that he wouldn't be able to bully so much. And he was irate about that. Vladimir Putin's chief anger at the United States was that the Obama administration had inherited a Bush, a George Bush initiative to have a missile defense in Eastern Europe to protect all of Europe from a rogue Iranian missile. But Putin understood that that could also be re-engineered to protect them from his nuclear threats. And had we had that, Right now, the Ukrainian debacle could be seen in a different light, where the Europeans might have been sitting under some type of nuclear deterrent. And again, that was done by Obama for his own selfish political needs. And I say this, Jack, because when you 
when you calculate what Hillary Clinton did with our uranium holdings and how her family foundation and her husband were paid off, and then you put in in that context the later Russian collusion, how she used uh, Russian sources, Russian sources to blacken Donald Trump's name. And you know that the Russians did not want Donald Trump to be president because he was an unknown quantity. And she was a known quantity that had performed for them very well as Secretary of State. When you put all of that together, and then you look at the phone call for which Donald Trump was impeached, and you think, my God, this country was once a wonderful country, and it's so asymmetrical. He's impeached for delaying, delaying offensive weapons, which he has approved to Ukraine, which Biden, Biden, and Obama never approved. And he's impeached because in the process, he mentioned that he was worried that they had been too familiar with the crooked Biden family. And they had, A, been too familiar uh, with the Biden family. And B, we know that Trump was right, that they were absolutely crooked. There was nothing wrong with saying that. Right. He was impeached for it. And when you look what Obama did on that hot mic, and you look what the Clintons did with uranium and with Russian collusion, and who was working closely with the Russians at, at their at the expense of the United States national security? If there was any justice in the world, the first thing that they would do if they gain the House, I'm not saying it's wise politically. It's probably not wise politically. I'm not saying that the people would support it when the media got done with it, the people would be against it. But if there was any justice, cosmic justice in the world, the first thing Kevin McCarthy should do is impeach Joe Biden. And they yeah. should impeach him, first of all, on the laptop information. And the second thing they should do it is that he did, he systematically destroyed federal immigration law. He did not faithfully carry out his oath of office to execute the laws. And he yeah. did that intentionally. And that would be that would send a message. And we that gets back to our earlier discussions about Old Testament and New Testament Republicans right. when they take power. To yeah. what degree do they retaliate to create a teach the, the left a lesson versus do you really want to sink down to their level? That you, well, everybody has that debate. Well, that you know, Victor, I, I know we didn't discuss this in in advance of the show as we you know we talk about what we're gonna what we are gonna talk about, but I, I kind of find a third possible impeachable item, and that's I'm just talking out of my hat here. But yeah. this um, uh, Obiden, uh, Obiden, Obiden uh, granting executive clemency or a pardon to people using on on the marijuana stuff. I just find the arrogance of of a of a president thinking the well, law he, that, is not. He, yeah, he, he basically just, just have to follow the law. He basically <laughs> he made a law. it. Yeah, he yeah. made a law. He just said all at once, federal immigration law. I can't change because I don't have. I'm not in the Congress, so I'm just going to make it useless. Because if you ever convict anybody on it, they're not going to go to jail. And then, second of all. He didn't have the constitutional right to overturn a congressionally approved legislation on federal student loan. He just gave it away. He just, with a stroke of the pen, said, I, as a dictator, say, following contractual obligations between student and lender no longer exist. That's as if he goes into a person's home and says, you owe, you signed a contract with a Ford Motor Company to buy that pickup. You don't owe any money anymore. 
Yeah. That is a revolutionary Catalinian, right out of the late Roman Republic, revolutionary act. Yeah. And that is an impeachable. They're all impeachable offenses. And this is what's so, I don't know how, I love this country so much, but when you look at this this asymmetry that's happened with this bicoastal elite, and then you juxtapose it to the FBI. And just this week, Jack, we heard that Grassley had a letter with 600 plus FBI agents had been charged with sexual harassment, right. and assault, and they were all reassigned and it was hushed up. And then we hear about the Catholic activist that was kind of frog marched out of his home in front of his children for supposedly, I don't know. Uh, the the uh, abortion clinic access. Clinic. Yeah, there was yeah, nothing uh, there. And they were just there. trying to show show everybody that they could go after you, why they wouldn't go after people who were bombing or firebombing pro-life. Mm-hmm. And then you add that to how they treated Peter Navarro and James O'Keefe. And then you look at James Baker, the FBI legal counsel that was finagling around with Steele. And then they was sort of forced to resign. And he goes in and he's Twitter's chief counsel. And he's kind of suppressing any talk about collusion and, and everything. And he's, he's kind of the legal advisor now to Twitter after his disgraceful performance for the FBI. Then we throw in Kevin Kleinsmith, the felon who altered a document. We look at the last four directors, and it's very hard to see that if any of them have told the truth, Andrew McCabe, four times a federal investigator's line, James Comey, 245 times, pleading amnesia, Robert Mueller doesn't claims under oath he doesn't know what the Steele dossier is. And then we have Christopher Ray, the latest incarnation that was doing these performance art raids. Oh my gosh! Uh, yeah, yeah. So they're all—it's crooked, and it right. needs to be broken up. It's very, very dangerous. The FBI has become very dangerous. I hate to say that, but right. they have all of those divisions—the narcotics, international travel—all of them have to be broken up, and they have to be outsourced to individual cabinet. Put some in Homeland Security. Put some in the Department of Interior. Put some. But don't concentrate that power in Washington with the type of people they're hiring. It's too dangerous. What the FBI did, and then when you add that to the weaponization of the DOJ under Merrick Garland going after parents and laptops and diaries ordering the FBI, and then you put that in connection with the Pentagon and what Mark Milley has been doing and the woke indoctrination and 50% down on their recruitments and yeah. the contact with the PLA co- counterpart in China that Milley made. And then you add in as dessert, all of the retired officers who violated the uniform code of military justice, calling Trump, everything from a Nazi to Mussolini to an Auschwitz like, and you put all of that together and you think, my God, there is a profile here of the permanent federal employee bureaucrat right. who is so, not elected and not subject to audit or control, mm-hmm. and they are totally out of control. They violate the law with abandon, and there is no repercussions. And they work now as an arm of the left, an unelected arm of the left. Right. It's, they're like a sovereign nation unto they themselves. Are. They are. Yeah. The deep just, state, deep state, yeah. administrative state, bureaucratic state, call it what you wish. They're the, 
There are the 5,000 at Versailles that uh, were there and the Bourbons didn't know what to do with them. They were the, they're the mm-hmm. 10,000 at the L.S. Garreau and the Spanish monarchs didn't know what to do with them. They're the Kremlin apparatchiks. They're the apparatchiks in the Forbidden City. They're just a permanent group of people who over a lifetime master how government works. They have no ability to function outside of government. And they tend to be for big government because that's who they are. And we're not even talking about Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci and the whole federal. Because I'm just saying that, Jack, because after all of this acrimony, Anthony Fauci and the CDC funded Peter Daszak. Again? Yes, (laughs) $600,000 plus. So they're basically saying to the American people, worried about an engineered virus? Claim that our money helped fund the Wuhan lab. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Screw you. We're going to give him more money and see what you're going to do about it. Right. Oh, you're worried that he rigged a Lancet independent investigation where he got all of his cronies. They went over to China. The Chinese lied to them. They nodded back and forth. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nod, wink and nod. And they came back and said, oh, there was a bad. There was a pangolin. And then all of a sudden, oh, whole investigations discredited Lancet has forced to renounce it and that guy gets more money they always land on their feet or if they fall down they're not hurt because they're they fall on their wallets which yeah and i think i think loaded, people loaded. are traditionalist and conservative listeners it, it's have to be acculturated to this i do because what are we talking about jack we we grew up supporting the fbi the cia the doj uh, and these people have become a left-wing operative uh, for the Democratic Party, and it's they're scary, and they've got power, and they're ruthless. And we're not even talking about the new eighty-seven thousand agents for the IRS. That my gosh, my God! And by the way, you count the number of tax returns that are filed, uh, and then you count the number of new agents and you add that to the existing agents i don't know i kind of did the calculus right and it's about one out of 15 i don't know what it was 1500 uh family household that are of a particular yeah and so they're not what i'm trying to say is they're not going after wealthy people right they're going to go after small entrepreneurial businesses that report a gross income probably of 300,000 to a million and a half. They run a road paving company. They're electricians. They're not going to. Or anybody who takes a thousand dollars out of the bank. Oh, what'd you do that for? You know, I think they're going to go after also limousine drivers, taxi drivers. Oh, yeah. Uber drivers, waitresses, waitresses, bartenders. No question. Swap me, swap me peddlers, mm-hmm. uh, farmers market, anywhere cash is exchanged, they're going to, because they're desperate for money, yeah. but they're not going to go after the people that basically report all their income at a reduced capital gains rate. Well, Victor, we're not uh, desperate for money, but we do have to make some time for our advertisers. I think you would agree to that. So we're going to, you know what, next, we're going to talk, um, pick up a little bit about Kanye West and BLM and Sharon Osbourne. And uh, let's get to that right after these important messages.
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. I'd like to remind our listeners, particularly our new listeners, to visit victorhanson.com. That's Victor's exclusive official uh, website. And when you're there, you will find links to every piece that he's written for American Greatness, his syndicated columns, etc. Links to the, these podcasts, other podcasts, other appearances. And then there are links to something called Ultra. And Ultra are the pieces that Victor writes exclusively for that website. You can't read them unless you're subscribing. And what's, what's that? Well, it's $5, $5, test it out, see what you've been missing. And there's a lot of content. Victor writes a lot of original content for victorhanson.com every week. If you like what you see and you will like what you see, you will love what you see. It's 50 bucks for the year. So do subscribe. Uh, if you don't, you're missing a lot of Victor's um, uh, brilliance. So that's victorhanson.com. As for me, Jack Fowler, I write the free weekly email newsletter called Civil Thoughts. It's, hey, I find a dozen, 12, 13, 14 pieces out there that I think are wise, smart, important, etc. And I just share them. I share the links. I share some excerpts. And at, uh, it's published by the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic. That's where I hang my hat. We try to strengthen civil society. Hey, why don't you subscribe? Again, it's free. Go to civilthoughts.com. We don't sell your name, anything like that. I, really, you'll, you will uh, enjoy it. So um, back with now, we're, we're going to be talking about Sharon Osborne, Ozzy Osborne's wife. I'll be I'll be I'll be uh, try not to be too nasty. So uh, she had a a show on CBS, I believe, that was a you know, competitor of sorts to The View. She got into some uh, racial accusations uh, a, a while back. She was essentially backstabbed and canceled. I know she's she's been on Fox of late. She, she has a documentary about what she went through. And for all I know, she even has a show on Fox Nation. Not sure, but um, now she's in the news. And, and of course, you know, Victor and, uh, and, and Sammy had a podcast they recorded the other day. Can't wait to listen to it. It's about the Kanye West, uh, Black Lives Matter. Um, excuse me, White Lives Matter. He was wearing White Lives Matter shirt at, at um, Paris Fashion Show. But it brings us into Black Lives Matter. 
there's been some increase in criticism of it, obviously. You know, where's all this money gone? And Sharon Osbourne is someone who's questioning where's all this money gone? Because she gave $900,000 to BLM a couple of years ago. Now she wants it back, having seen that it's been splurged on houses for its founders. So, you know what? I'm glad she's bringing attention to it. But frankly, I'm, my heart doesn't bleed for her. Why the hell did she give the money in the first place when it was clearly a lefty organization? Victor, use this as a launching pad. Why, why did, do you have any sympathy for Sharon Osbourne? Or? Uh, not really. She, why did, first of all, why she was under attack from the left and she became a little bit pushback, but why would she give $900,000 to an organization that anybody with a modicum of sense knew was, I think they left used the word decentralized. That means that it was a mess. And the founders created this movement based on a lie that when George Zimmerman was acquitted, remember that Black Lives Matter said he was guilty of murder. And that was a travesty. And we knew one thing about that case is that George Zimmerman was attacked by Trayvon Martin, who was mad that he was following him because he thought Trayvon Martin was engaged in suspicious activity. Trayvon Martin beat him up, slammed his head. He pulled out a gun and shot him in self-defense. There was no argument that they were in an argument. There was no argument that George Zimmerman was losing the argument, the fight, I should say. There was no argument that in the desperation to exonerate Trayvon Martin, the president of the United States weighed in on the criminal case and said he looks like the son I would never have. Imagine Bill Clinton had he said after the OJ murder that right. this is a, this is a daughter this is she looks like the daughter I never second daughter I or never Goldstein had. yeah right. yeah Goldstein was looks like the son I never had so he weighed in on it. We know that cable TV photoshopped picture of the wounds of George Zimmerman so they wouldn't appear. We know that when Cable News played the 9-11. They edited it in such a way to make George Zimmerman look like he was hunting down suspects. So the point was it was founded like the 1619 Project on an untruth. And then it gained credence on another untruth, the Ferguson shooting when Michael Brown, we were told, said, hands up, don't shoot. We know that was a lie by the bystanders. No one, everybody knew that was a lie. He didn't say that. And he was not shot in the back and he was not shot running away. He was shot attacking an officer again. And so the whole movement was based on something that was not true. And then the women who organized it, remember what their original intent was, was that I think two of the three and maybe the three were either bisexual or gay black women. And they had felt that they were going to make a movement that was going to clamor for, uh, harangue about, lobby about gay rights, women's rights. It wasn't going to be an ecumenical black organization until it caught on. And it didn't really catch on to the extent until the George Floyd. And then it became a multi-million dollar receptacle when people looked at 120 days of riot, two to three billion dollars in damage, 30 to 40 people murdered, killed. 1,500 police officers injured and businesses and suburban people said, you know what, I'm going to give to BLM. I want to show my solidarity with George Floyd. 
This was a time, remember, when Washington, D.C. was making places, you know, like Seattle, Washington, D.C. were carving out urban zones, sanctuaries during the riots when George Floyd started appearing in murals with a halo and angelic wings. And a lot of corporations thought, you know, this is, we did it with Jesse Jackson. We used to give Operation Push, the Rainbow Coalition money, and we're going to give BLM money and we're going to let people know we're giving it. So that's what uh, Sharon Osbourne, now she wants it back because lo and behold, just as everybody assumed, the people who organize it are not there any longer. And the structure of the organization has sort of had a euphemism, as I said, decentralized. And Miss, I guess her name was Quellars and Garza and Tometi. They're gone, and they're gone with the money. And they bought the money, right? They, they bought yeah. nice, beautiful homes, three to four mm. of them in one case. And they're mm. not living in the neighborhood. They're living among white people that they detest, supposedly. So a lot of people feel that they were taken, but they shouldn't feel they were taken because it served their needs. I'm sure that Sharon Osbourne told everybody that she gave $900,000 to BLM, and she took out what we could call indemnity insurance from the left. It didn't serve her very well, and now she's mad because she got fired from her show, and she wanted people to know that she was contrite and gave to BLM, and now she feels like, I didn't get any benefit out of it, and I don't think the corporations got any benefit out of it. And right. Uh, so that's what it was all about. And, you know, historically, when the Jacobins take over in France in 1793, and you professed that you were an atheist and you wanted to destroy Catholic monasteries, or when the Bolsheviks took over in 1917, you were a Russian aristocrat and say you, you really love Vladimir Lenin, or during any of the witchcraft and say, yeah, I found my own witch, here she is. That's what people do. They make the necessary adjustments. And that's what people did with BLM. Right. And I don't have any sympathy for them that they that the recipients absconded with the money and made them look like idiots. Right. So right. That's what it was all, that was what it was all about. And Black Lives Matter was inherently uh, based on a lie, as I said, another lie, I should say, that it was based on the allegation that Black individuals who come in contact with the police are being shot while unarmed in a greater proportion than their demographics. And that was a lie. The Washington Post did a systematic review mm -hmm. of cases. 11 million people a year are arrested pretty much inordinately compared to their percentages in the population. Blacks, probably about 55%. But the number of people who were killed versus the number of people who are arrested rather than the number of people in the general population, which wouldn't be a very fair comparison. They're not inordinately shot while unarmed. And so, and they don't, and BLM knew that. And yet right. it, it was systematically racist. And they that started a lot, that set a lot of things in motion, Jack, that have really hurt people. And one of them was the defund the police movement that was championed by BLM and boomerang back on the inner city and the African-American community, mostly elderly African-Americans or young African-Americans or children or babies that have been casualties or collateral damage or deliberately preyed upon by career criminals that have been let out. And the police have made cost of benefit analyses where they will not go into the inner city because they feel it's a 
lose, 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 lose situation. I go in there, I could get shot. I go in there to save my life, I could shoot somebody. If I shoot somebody, I'm all done because they're going to demonize me. And, and so I'm, I'm not going to go in there. And that's added to the problem. And so I can't think of any one good thing that BLM has done. And they don't really, it's, again, they started on the lie of Trayvon Martin and Ferguson. They furthered that lie. They cashed in. They took the money. They called anybody a racist who objected. So all lives matter became a racist thing. White lives matter became a racist thing. And it's all predicated, again, on the premise that because of the history of slavery in the South and Jim Crow in the South and racism throughout the United States, that even here we are 60, mm. 60 years after the civil rights movement, doesn't matter that there's going to be an asymmetry, that you cannot say things that are empirical because right long history and i don't think that's going to be valid anymore i think a lot of groups that are so-called minorities whether latinos or asians or poor whites they don't really feel that they have to to not tell the truth and right the truth is that three to four or to five percent of the population are committing 55 percent of violent crime and many of the victims are people who are not white and nobody will talk about it. And BLM was a contributor to that with their defunding the police advocacy. Victor, we don't give assignments here, but to me, the, the best roughly one hour of truth telling uh, on, on race in America, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, is Eli and Shelby Steele's yes. documentary from about two, two years ago, three years ago, What Killed Michael Brown? It is so empirical, and it's not only about the Michael Brown case, which was exploited by BLM, but then Shelby looks at how, you know, white, white elites have abused and destroyed the lives of, of blacks for power in his own life. Look at this neighbor. There used to be vibrant neighborhood here and torn down to build a project, etc. It's so illuminating. I really recommend uh, folks find it on Amazon. I think people should watch that. And I think they should go back and read things that Shelby Steele and Tom Soule have written, two colleagues at the Hoover Institution. There is a theme to their lifetime contributions to the race question. And it runs like this that a group of white liberals in the 60s, some well-meaning, others probably racist themselves and wanted to pay penance by sounding helpful or liberal or progressive and advocating certain federal handouts that they would never themselves approve for their own children. In other words, when they raised their own children, they said, you're gonna be on time in school, if you if you disrupt the class, you're going to be in trouble with me, and you're going to do this and follow this rule. And then they, in their guilt, institutionalize a separate set of exemptions for African Americans, even though knowingly they knew that that was no guide to create a successful individual in a competitive society like ourselves. And then they went further and said, you know, we're going to design a perfect high rise with all the main modern architectural principles and we're gonna we'll put them sky high and we'll put them in this area and it's basically well we're gonna make it really nice and we're gonna give you free stuff but you're gonna stay over there 
And when the black leadership saw that and thought that they could be enriched by promoting a separatist but nihilist point of view, the white liberal community said, that's right. Uh, you know, Leonard Bernstein, come over to my house, the Black Panthers and my home, my flat or my apartment, and we will romanticize you. But we want you to be militant and we want you to demand more stuff. And we want you to get the great society and we want to give cradle to grave stuff. Now, we wouldn't do we wouldn't think that would be helpful for our kids in prep school. We're on their way to Harvard, but we will inculcate in you and force you to adopt uh, modes of behavior that will be destructive to your family. And, and that was Shelby's uh, themes about white guilt. And Tom then sort of grounded it in, in a different frame in economics and tried to show that prior to the civil rights movement, when you looked at the critical barometers of success, marriage rates, divorce rates, illegitimacy, two-parent households, that the African-American community, despite years of oppression and discrimination, were pretty much comparable with the white community. And there were uh, an entrepreneurial self-help uh, Booker T. Washington spirit among the black community. And then the federal government came in and it destroyed that, that ethos by the great society. And the great society, you know, subsidized women not to get married, to have more to, for each illegitimate child. They did things that legitimized it. And then when we fast forward 50 years since and you get the woke movement and it's just the crystallization or the ultimate ramification or the ultimate reification, I should say, of these toxic ideas. So we're now saying that being on time is a white idea, that studying at night is a white idea, that following the rules is a white idea. And jumping the turnstile in the Washington subway is permissible because if you enforce people giving a ticket, it would be an ordinantly black. So the woke movement says any type of perceived inequality cannot be for any other reason except culpable white racism and a, a select group of minority superstars and moral superiors are going to be invested with the power to say this in cultural Marxist terms, binaries, there's no middle ground. This is an oppressor, this is an oppressed. This institution, this person is a victimizer. This guy is a victim. And you end up, what do you end up with? What's the ultimate result, the telos, as Aristotle would say, of the BLM movement? You know what it is? It's what? Oprah Winfrey mm. from her Montecito home right. to Meghan Markle at her Montecito home, both lamenting that despite the fact that they're among the most influential, powerful, and wealthy people in the world, that they're victims. Right. And Barack Obama, whether it's from his new Hawaii seashore mansion or his Calorama seashore mansion or his Martha Vineyards, every once in a while, Michelle Obama will venture out and then tell the United States that it's systemically racist. That's what the ultimate ramification is, absurdity. Right. And everybody's supposed to say to themselves, I will suspend disbelief because, right. Right. because of the history of racism and systemic right. slavery and all of this stuff. I'm just going to suspend that this is absurd. 
Right. So Colin Kaepernick is not a grifter who's over the hill, who made $50 million calling everybody racist, or LeBron James with his $2 billion net worth and his Chinese Fed uh, contracts and his Bel Air or whatever he lives in it, whatever Tony district he lives with the security, he is a victim too. And so that doesn't work. And I think what's happening now is that a lot of African-Americans like the Hispanic community is saying to themselves, I am proud of my collective, but I'm an individual. And I mm -hmm. found out something about liberals and white liberals. These people, these bi-coastal elites, they're not very nice people. They try to uh, tell me what to think and what to do. They're condescending. They don't put their kids in the schools with me. They don't like to have me for, for dinner. They don't hang out with me. They don't live among me. And it's the same tool of our minority elites. They're just the same. And I'm just going to be a, a free-thinking individual. I'm going to say, which which candidate gives me cheaper gas? Which gives me a better shot and upward mobility? Which gives me less inflation? Which gives me more security when I'm walking down the streets of Baltimore? Which uh, candidate is more likely to allow me to fill up with gas? And that's what I'm going to vote in. I'm a, I'm a person. I'm an individual. Right. Right. I'm not a part of a collective. I'm not a cog in a big liberal wheel that has to bow and scrape to some phony. I'm not going to listen to what Nancy Pelosi says when she says, oh, those migrants, they should come down here where they can pick crops. Or when Joe Biden says, oh, you people are beautiful like a taco. Or when Joe Biden says to a, a senior assistant, I have a, my boy down here. And so they start to see that Behind the curtain, this left-wing progressive elite really doesn't feel comfortable with people other than themselves. Right. So when Joe Biden talks about his leg hair getting bronze and African-American kids stroking his legs and so fascinated with his white skin and white golden hair, you can see where he's coming from in his braggadocio that he took on corn pop with a specially cut Oh, you know, a piece of change. change. Oh you, you ain't black or hey, junkie. So they understand that. And I think you're going to see the first real revolutionary ramifications of new generations of minorities are going to say, you know what? Not this pig. I'm not going to do it anymore. Yeah. I'm going to vote my own interest. And you may see the Republican candidate pick up 40 to 50 percent of the Asian and, and uh, Latino vote, and maybe 20 percent of the African-American vote, which is going to be very telling and critical given that Joe Biden and the Progressive Party have absolutely alienated the white working class, the chumps, mm. what they call the chumps, the dregs, the losers, the crazies, the deplorables, the irredeemables, and the clingers, the stuff that Peter the Strzok... semi-fascists, yes. Yeah, what's semi-fascists of Joe Biden or what Peter Strzok and Lisa Page said smelled up Walmart. Yeah. Well, let's, you know, Victor, we got a little time left. So uh, you, this is a segue into the forthcoming elections, which are around 30 days out from when we're recording. So let's let's get you to put on your prognosticator hat and we'll do that right after these important messages. back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So I always felt, Victor, you were, well, back in 2016, I thought 
back when you were writing regularly for National Review, and I was, I think I was the publisher then. I mean, uh, you, you just knocked it out of the park with your political analysis uh, regularly, more so than anyone else, more so than the paid political uh, journalists and pundits. Here you are, the classicist, the military historian, and you really, if you look back over that year of your analysis and writing, um, I, I do think you were the premier analysts of what was uh, what was happening and what was coming. So I've always respected your political take immensely, and I think many of our listeners do too. Now, I just, uh, as we're recording, uh, the Daily Mail publishes a piece. Uh, Republicans could pick up Senate seats in Arizona and Nevada. Projections show GOP with 52-48 majority in the upper chamber after the 2022 midterms. And this is uh, um, Daily Mail reporting on a new analysis from our friends at Real Clear uh, Politics. So, Victor, 5248, as I look at this map, it's um, assuming the Republicans are going to take Nevada and Arizona and keep Pennsylvania, not, not take uh, Georgia and, you know, Herschel Walker has been in, in, uh, under the spotlight the last, last week. Anyway, 5248 is what's being projected there. Victor, as we head into election day and many people in many States are already voting, uh, what, what your, your thoughts about, is there a wave, the size of the wave will, will Republicans take the Senate? Yeah, I think they will. I think it'll be, 53 to 54 seats. I think they'll pick up 40 to 50 in the House the, for a variety of reasons, Jack. The, and we have about three or four parameters that guide us to that conclusion. One is the President of the United States is polling in the low 40s. That's a bad sign traditionally. Number two, even if he wasn't, the first term president usually loses uh, 40 to 30 to 40 seats in the House and during the first midterms. That's against him. Number three, every one of the issues that you and I have talked about, or with Sammy, the border, inflation, Afghanistan, crime, gasoline, he's down 30% approval on those particular issues. And uh, number four, um, when Joe Biden decided to go, I guess you'd say, full demagogue, full hate hate speech calling people all of these names and screaming and yelling and then you combine that with his physical and cognitive challenges people got angry and they're getting angry and so there was never let's be clear about that there was never a blue renaissance that all of a sudden the red red wave had dissipated that the republicans had blown it that the road versus wade had revolutionized them that was all that was all hype. That was all a construct. We heard it in 1994. There was no contract of America. It was a joke. We heard it in 2010. The Tea Party littered the Capitol. They called people racist and all those lies. And there were big blowouts. So that's what's going to happen. I can't claim any presence in 2016 after the Access Hollywood. I said that it wouldn't matter. It wasn't because I was pressing or Nostradamus. I just looked at what all of our listeners knew. And they said, you know what? We don't like what Trump said 10 years ago, we, but we're not going to demand that he drop out of the race because the people who are demanding that were perfectly all right with Bill Clinton as he uh, performed sex acts in the Oval Office bathroom while he was president. They didn't say a word about JFK's serial philandering with staffers. They didn't care 
about any of these issues. It's only when they use it against us. And so whether you say that Covington, you, you were suspicious about the Covington kids, are you suspicious about Josie Smollett? Are you suspicious about the Duke lacrosse incidents or the latest volleyball? All of our listeners know that's, that you, you have to because you have common sense and these don't compute. And as I often think to myself, when I hear what David Brooks says after the 2006, I have to listen more. Right. He didn't really believe that. It was just trying to explain why he was so wrong. Yes. And Bill Crystal says this or that, or Peggy Noonan says we have to be more compassionate for the people who feel left out. I just think the opposite. Whatever they think is going to happen or whatever prediction they make, I usually, and it goes back a long time. I just right. do the opposite. If you do that, you, you're pretty much going to be right. Yeah. So when they said Trump didn't have a chance, I knew he did. And when they say, you know, the midterms are not going to be that big or it's problematic or it's complex, then I know it's going to be big. It's going to be big, the margin. And I'll just finish very quickly by saying, I get redistricted all the time, and I go in and out of a long 30-year Congress uh, career of Jim Costas, and he's always up for re-election. They always have various different types of candidates. Once in a while, he loses the popular vote on Election Day, but he always wins the SCIU or the absentee or the early voting, whatever it is, comes his way. And so he's now running against a candidate. Nobody really knows who he is. He's a very good candidate. I don't want to get into the whole, I know Jim Costa. I like Jim Costa, but the Trafalgar poll that was commissioned just shows them dead even, Jack. And I think that we're about 12% up Democratic district. And more importantly, when you look at the mechanics of the poll that came out, women, Hispanics, and Democrats were inordinately polled, like 65 to 70 percent, because those are the likely voters. So what I'm saying is that a Democratic constituency with a huge margin in this district and a pollster who understands that and weighs heavily women, minorities, Democrats, comes up with a result that is dead even in this district. That suggests, I'm not saying that Jim Cost is going to lose because this has happened before. And on election day, he loses the popular vote and a month later he wins it. But what I'm getting at is, in theory, almost every district is up for grabs this year. And a lot of the Senate races are up for grabs. And the traditional left-wing progressive pollsters know that. And a lot of these polls, not all of them, but a lot of these polls either deliberately do not sample a likely registered voter right. or they're not telling us that there is a margin as Trafalgar people have reminded us where people will not tell the truth because they figure that if somebody calls them and says, hi, I'm pulling for Emerson and I just want you to answer a couple of questions. They're afraid that that data and that phone number will go on some computer right. bank as a right. deplorable. So right. they don't answer or they hang up. And so it's very hard to find people who will poll. And so you add all that together, and these races are a lot closer than we think. And in the next four months, does anybody really believe that we're going to get a third quarter GDP, that the oh, economy is oh, red hot, growing at 2%, yeah. or that food prices yeah. crashed? And when Joe Biden says, 
hey, thanks to me, gas has gone down 20 cents a gallon. Well, now it's up 25. I and, think about uh, so is <laughs> are we to say okay you made a precedent you said the president has absolute control right. of the gas prices not the market not Ukraine so you are responsible Joe right before the midterms for spiking gas to an all time high it's all time high here in California so and it's going up and it's going to keep going up I don't see anything Jack in other words in the next four weeks that are going to change that verdict it's only going to get worse. And the question will be whether the, the Republicans are going to be Old Testament and pay back in kind what the Democrats did, impeach Joe Biden, as we said, and do all, or they're going to be New Testament and say, I'm not going to stoop to their level. Let's get on with the agenda. Right. I will say one thing that I think all the voters have to, to go out and vote. Right. And nobody's saying it because it would discourage turnout, but don't be discouraged. And that is, they will take the House. And they will take the Senate, but they can't block Joe Biden's executive orders and they cannot pass legislation. So they, the House can pass legislation and they can send it to the Senate and the Senate can pass it. And Joe Biden guarantee will veto every single law that Congress passes and they don't have 60 votes. And there's not enough smart, pragmatic Democrats of that 46 to 48 or whatever they are to say, you know what? I'm going to join the Republicans and override that veto. He's only going to need about four or five of us because I'll get wiped out next time I run in 2024. They're not going to do that. And so Joe Biden will rule by executive order and stop all positive legislation. We saw that with Barack Obama after 2010. Right. And well, especially that he's compromised physically and cognitively. He doesn't care about anybody else. So that's... It, we're going to stop the bleeding, but we're not going to get a transfusion and restore the patient is what I'm trying to say. I agree. I agree. Still still worth uh, jamming Absolutely. Uh, legislation he, down his throat. Everybody vote because this guy can do a lot of damage, a lot more damage. A lot more, right. Yeah. Exactly. If I said to everybody in this audience, I think I kind of said it, but if everybody in the audience had imagined in January of 2021, if somebody had said, this guy... And the Obama advisors and Elizabeth Warren, who's advising them, and Bernie Sanders and the squad, they're going to double your gas prices and make you vulnerable to foreign leaders. And they're going to beg Venezuela and Iran for oil. And they're going to raise your prices by 9%. And they're going to destroy your 401k. And they're going to make it impossible to walk in a major city as crime is going to spike to a 40-year high, and they're going to turn over billions of dollars to the Taliban and military hardware and embassies and bear bases and skedaddle. And Vladimir Putin, who's going to watch us, is going to invade Ukraine. They would have said, oh, Victor, you're a nut. That's horrible. Or who are these right-wing nuts? But that's what happened. And I think right. And that just remember that he can do that again and again and again. And we haven't seen them. We haven't seen the end of it. We're just looking at the beginning. Yeah, I think people know what these problems we have in the world have. This is self-inflicted. And the guy with his finger on the trigger has been has been Joe Biden without question. So, hey, anyway. Victor, that's that's about all the time we have, except for the usual um, uh, heading for the exits business we we attend to, which is to thank you. And we're, we're genuine in our thanks to our listeners for listening and the numbers grow and grow. Thanks for to newcomers. Thanks for those who are uh, 
fans of this podcast, no matter what platform you listen on, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, Apple, we thank you very much for listening. Those who are on Apple have the opportunity to rate the, the podcast. Uh, it's a very high rating here. We 4.9, et cetera, et cetera. It's almost five uh, of a uh, perfect five. Some people, some people don't like the the host. They, they, they shave a point off. All right, say lovey. Anyway, thank those who who uh, do rate the the uh, the podcast, and some actually leave comments, which you can do on uh, on uh, Apple, and we read them. And we also read the comments on Victor's website. Thank you for those who take the time to do that. Here's one from Kenan Oakhurst, who's responding to a couple of recent podcasts, including one with Sammy was Victor and Sammy talked about, well, you and I, Victor had done a podcast and one of the questions had come up about your love for music and some other um, movie stuff. And people loved that. And then you and Sammy did a fuller one on uh, movies and, and, and music. Uh, so Ken in Oakhurst uh, wrote this, it's titled movies and actors. Wow. I would have sworn you were standing at my movie cabinet calling off the, the titles, The Wild Bunch. And Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, director cuts, are two of my favorites. Don't forget Robert Ryan as Deke Thornton. We are men, and I wish to God I was with them, uh, which, by the way, is uh, a theme that you've taken on and, and, and written a piece. Actually, I believe it's the beginning of a series of ultra pieces for VictorHanson.com on on great men. Anyway, he concludes. Uh, Hello from Oakhurst. Tell us more about your dogs, Ken and in Oakhurst. And Victor, let's. Uh, uh, I'll remind Ken and others that you've you've written in in uh, for your website about your uh, your pets, including uh, you did a nice series. I think it was about three or four part series uh, earlier this year about the dogs you've owned. Uh, so, uh, Ken, check that out. Thanks, Ken, for, for your comments. Victor, thanks for your wisdom as usual. This is a great, uh, great episode, I think. Thanks all for listening. We'll, we will be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. <laughs>